welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we are recording this on the afternoon after the time change, and hopefully we're all going to be okay. (laughs) I am so glad we moved the time of the podcast, because between the time change and the fact that I have a a sick kiddo at home, I woke up after we would have recorded normally. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I looked over at the clock and I was like, oh, I'm glad we moved that. Yeah, it mm-hmm. just would have been a bit much. So yes. I am also thankful that everything worked out for us. Yay. But uh, Brenna, we should probably acknowledge that we are not alone. We've got a guest for this episode. There's someone else in here? <laughs> Shocking. Yes, he's looking in the corner. <laughs> so we are uh, very lucky to have a friend of mine from the internet. He's a frequent writing partner and a great podcast guest. So I'm very pleased to welcome Terry Menard. Hey, thank you. I'm just I'm just sitting in the corner eating Liam's loaded lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> really glad that we're not recording at nine in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so Terry, you came on this after I asked you because I saw that you had reviewed the television show, but uh, you had not read the comic, right? Yeah, up until that point, I had not read the comic. And so it was quite an experience reading the comic after seeing the show as i'm sure we'll get to (laughs) there's some uh definite changes yes yeah so folks who haven't already guessed based on the episode title we are covering i am not okay with this which is a comic by charles forsman and also a netflix tv show that just dropped back on february 26th so brenna yeah would you uh (laughs) I don't know. Like, I feel like you are just going to be bursting at the seams to want to talk about (laughs) some of this madness. But do you have anything to say before you just go into what the comic is about? I mean, I hated it, Joe. (laughs) I just freaking, I just hated it. It's rough. Like, I, okay, so listeners of our previous worst episode ever will remember that when we read Ghost World, (laughs) I commented at some length about how flippin' tired I am of middle-aged male depictions of teenage girlhood. And that was all over this for me. I didn't find Sydney at all authentic in her way of viewing the world, the way she talks about herself, the way she talks about her friends, the way she talks about her body. I felt like I was reading someone else's voyeuristic... Ugh! Joe, I hated it. I hated it so much. (laughs) Well, it's very interesting because this is a, it's a very sparse comic, right? Like it's it's black and white. There's not a lot to the illustration. So really, there's just not that much to hang a hat on. No, and I was actually really excited about the art style because I was like, oh, like it's a very clearly channeling like the Popeye kind of style Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of characterization. And I was like, I wonder if they're going to do something interesting with that. The answer is no. No, they do not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like the other thing that needs to be acknowledged on my B to that A is that this is a comic from a man whose work I've gathered is extremely cynical and dark Mm -hmm. and nihilistic. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if either of you have read anything else by Charles Forsman. Mm -mm. Yes. So 
I saw when it came out a couple years ago, the um, the end of the effing world on Netflix. And so that kind of made me go look for the, the book because um, I, I really en- enjoyed that kind of dark story. Yeah. And I, I didn't really care for the book. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing is I, I kind of wanted to talk about what you mentioned about you have a middle-aged man writing about a woman. Because one of the interesting things that came out of the end of the uh, effing world, though, is that it was embraced by a lot of youths. Mm. There's like a lot yeah. on Tumblr. There's like a lot of tags about this and a lot of young people writing breathless reviews about it. And we're talking about the comic, not the TV show? Both, actually. Okay. Mostly the TV show, but both. Like um, a lot of his his books started getting purchased by a bunch of um, teens as well after the show came out. Right. So like there is something that is... There's something connecting. Yeah. So I, I don't know exactly what it is because I I don't find any of the characters in his in either of these two books very interesting. I no. think they're both incredibly insufferable. Yes. They're so shallow too. And I don't yes. mean like the characters themselves are shallow, like the depth of characterization is so shallow. Yes. And I I do think that that's partly um I think that's kind of the point of his his writing cuz I went and I did some interviews and I'm like what is going on with this dude? And <laughs> what is his damage? <laughs> and he's like he's he he always talks about how he's not interested in plot and he's always interested in theme, which I can understand, mm. particularly with I am not okay with this, because it is very plotless, mm-hmm. but it is yeah. also very oppressive. Yes. The entire thing feels incredibly oppressive. And maybe before actually we get into talking about the content, we should reiterate what we did yes, say last call. episode, Joe, which is serious content warning on this. So the protagonist is dealing with trauma. Protagonist is dealing with the trauma of her her father's suicide there's also some scenes of domestic violence and then most jarringly um and this is full spoiler alert but i think it's more important to spoiler than to leave people without this awareness of content the book ends with a suicide yeah yeah i mean it's kind of baked into the dna like everything that is going on in this comic and to be honest from what i've gathered most of charles foreman's other works is just this pervasive sense that everything is terrible in the world. Mm -hmm. He's Mm -hmm. very interested in examining not the psychology of these characters, but very much the themes of a world that is utterly hopeless, Yeah, which obviously makes for some very dark content. But I think even though we anticipated some of this, it's jarring when you get to the end of this comic. It is jarring because I think that it's all very well to say you're not that into plot and you're only into theme or whatever, but you, he, as a writer, he didn't earn that ending for this character. We don't have enough to connect to the character with for it to be anything other than shock for shock's sake. And I, it was funny, I was sitting in the public library reading it and I was like, I think the first thing I did was close the book and text Joe. I hated that. I hated it. Can confirm. Yep. I got <laughs> <text>. <laughs> it's funny because I um I saw the show first before I, I read the book. And the last time I had such a gut reaction to this was when I was a kid. And I talked about this on, on one of my podcasts. But seeing um, Cujo and then reading the book afterwards. Mm-hmm. If I had read this as like a, a teen, I probably would have thrown the book across the room mm-hmm. like I did with Cujo because it's just... It's not what I was expecting mm. the the book to end with, and like you said, Brenna, I don't 
I don't think it's earned mm-hmm. in this particular case. No, it feels almost like a punchline, but there's no joke and it's not funny. It's interesting. Goodread reviews can be good and bad. Yeah, <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. I found it really interesting to read the Goodread reviews of this title because, uh, again, it reminds me very, very strongly of the experience of Ghost World, uh, which isn't entirely fair to Charles Forsman. The guy's like two decades younger than um, the Ghost World guy, but regardless, same same vibe. Because what I noticed is the people who are giving it really positive reviews are, you know, judging by what you can glean from Goodreads, often older male, often comic scholars or teachers, people who are really invested in the medium of comics. Okay. People who are giving it one-star reviews are young people who came to it after the show. And like that seems to be the kind of, it's like only people who were really into Charles Forsman had read it before. And now all these people are coming to it after the show and they're like one-starring the bejesus out of it. I'm not surprised by that at all. No. I honestly can't imagine going and watching the show, which is so much more emotionally accessible and also spends a lot of time developing its characters, like really puts in the time and energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to talk about it at length, but Mm -hmm. I think the show is actually very well done for what it's doing and considering the length of it. And then the endings are obviously completely different. So to then backtrack and find out what Sydney is like in this comic and then to get to that ending. I mean, I think this is a book that really is not the sum of its part. It is just the ending. Yeah. So it ends on such a dark nihilistic note that if you even remotely enjoyed the TV show, I don't think you could enjoy the comic. No. No. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I I don't see... The thing is, is that like... So I think that the comic does a good job of laying out almost like a storyboarding for a show, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel like an entire story. No. But it does. It feels like a structure, right? Like a frame. And then it's like, fill in character here, put in plot here. Right. Because I I do think that that's one thing that, um, gosh, I can't remember what the the creator's name is. Jonathan Entwistle? Yeah, I think so. I think the thing he does, he did really well with, with both series, The End of the Effing World and I'm Not Okay With This, is bringing characterization and life and filling in those little missing parts to make it a story that I think is more interesting than its source material. And I've thought that with both of his shows so far, because mm-hmm. I just, I don't, I'm not a fan of this, this writer. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think, and Wessel has done a, a really commendable job of finding the kernel that's interesting or that's exploitable sounds like a really bad word but in this case he sees the opportunity of what this text could be because he sees the emotional resonance that it could have to its younger audience but he's the one doing all the heavy lifting we're not actually seeing that in the source material at all should we give a brief synopsis of the plot? And I do mean brief yes, because yeah. there isn't very much plot. And then we can leap back into uh, talking about how it sucks. No, so. Brenna, this is our new format. We talk and complain about things for 10 <laughs> minutes off the top. <laughs> and people have no idea what we're talking about. I know. And I started it, but I couldn't help it. Like I was really struggling this morning thinking about how I was going to approach discussing this text because I, I really don't find... I mean, I try to find something redeeming or interesting about everything we read. And this is... Anywho, well, I think okay. it, it begs the preface so that we can set the stage. Because yeah. if we just talk about what this comic is about, I don't think people who have not had the chance to read it, they're not going to understand 
why we're having the reaction we are. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. Okay, so I am not okay with this by Charles Forsman. It was published in 2017, but my understanding is that this was a self-published mini comic series that came out over many years. Okay. So this is a collection of them. And you can kind of feel that. Yeah, you get that episodic vibe in the way the comic has been compiled. So our protagonist is named Sydney. She is 15 years old. She is... (laughs) she is the typical way some adults assume all teenagers are in the world (laughs) she's she's despondent she's depressed she's she's coping with trauma is what she's doing you wouldn't really know it from the source material but she is her father died by suicide two years previously and she is coping with the aftermath of that her mom works long hours at a diner job. They don't really connect. They're at that stage of teenage girlhood where understanding your mother is just a bridge too far. Um, (laughs) And she has a little brother who she is sort of charged with caring for. And she actively hates him. Yes, in the comic, she actively hates him. It's one of the things that makes the comic hard to read, I think, because you want her to have some redeeming characteristic and she doesn't anyway she also has a best friend named dina who she's sort of figuring out she's kind of maybe a little bit in love with there's a boy named stan who is a little bit um odd but who she i guess the most generous way to put it is she lets him have sex at her they're not really in anything like a relationship although he would like to be with her but he's also quite a cursory character. He kind of pops in and then he disappears for the vast majority of the book and comes back a little bit later. Yes, he does. Um, and then we have the crux of the matter, which is that uh, Sydney is slowly discovering that she has superpowers. She seems to be able to disrupt things with her mind. She gives Dina's boyfriend a nosebleed. She is able to sort of... Well, able is the wrong word. When she's angry or scared or upset, uh, she seems to cause like this pressure current around her that causes objects to move uh, and people to be harmed. Mm-hmm. And But she has very little control over it. She has very little control over it. And so slowly over the course of the narrative, she's trying to figure out if her dad's suicide has anything to do with these same kind of powers. Now, her dad was also traumatized. He had been in the Iraq war um, and was traumatized by that experience. Joe and I have talked a lot about this emergence of Iraq war narratives that we're seeing come out. This is, I would say, not a good example of one. Um, It's so... Tertiary to what's happening. It's almost like, and also, by the way, and you're just thinking, well, this is not doing it justice. (laughs) Yes. It's used almost as a hand-waving to excuse certain elements. Yes. But I think that's pretty much par for the course with this comic. It it Mm. is par for the course with mm -hmm. the comic. Using hand-waving little, yeah. Yes, I'm going to introduce this so that I can get from point A to E more quickly. Anyway, I mostly bring it up to remind everyone that I have in the past recommended The Impossible Knife of Memory as a book that deals with uh, what it's like to be raised by someone traumatized by war. And I think it is uh, better in about 5,000 ways. (laughs) I Um, really feel. So as the text progresses, uh, she becomes more and more, Sydney becomes more and more out of control with her powers and more and more stressed about her inability to control herself. Uh, And she ends up killing Dina's boyfriend because he gets her pregnant and then denies that he's going to have any involvement and 
I think beats her up also in that scene. And so she, in an act of revenge, goes in and kills him out of anger. And But she recognizes that, like, she has no control over these powers. Just not what Dina wanted out of the situation. She's, like, not made anything better by killing this guy. And so she, in sort of a fit of despondency and despair and a desire to be closer to her father, she also dies by suicide at the end of the comic. Yes. So one one thing, a uh, point of clarification maybe for myself, in the comic, I don't think it was suicide for the dad. No. That's oh, one really? of the big developments that we come to find out. I missed this entirely. Yeah, so <laughs> there's there's a bit of an extended sequence in the comic that reveals that everyone thinks her father died by suicide, but in truth he was suffering mentally. Sydney came upon him oh, he right. begged her oh, to kill wow. him and right, she right. used her powers to kill him. I completely blocked that out. Like <laughs> completely. Like when you Not that I blame you. <laughs> when you said that, I literally had like one of those like a mini brain flashbacks to sitting in the library reading that scene. Like I agree with you that it exists, but I had completely blocked it out. Holy well, crap. <laughs> I think it's actually really important and thank you Terry for raising that because yes. <laughs> to me it's one of the greatest distinctions between the comic and the TV show. And again, it is used a little bit as a hand-waving gesture to explain why Sydney is the way that she is. But I don't know. Like, I don't think I hate this as much as the pair of you do. I kind of like certain sequences. And to me, the idea that... I think this episode in particular sets up Sydney's journey because she thinks that she can use her powers for good, right? When she ultimately kills... Dina's boyfriend, whose name I can't even remember. Brad? Brad, Brad yeah. Brad. But okay. who could care? In the comic, who, who care? could care? They're all just caricatures of people who Charles Forsman didn't like in high school. Like, the extent to which Charles Forsman is Stan is so freaking clear to me. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> but the way that she tries to handle Brad is, I think it's in response to the fact that she quote-unquote, helped her father die by suicide. Mm. So she thinks that she can use her powers for good to solve the problem that Dina is experiencing. And of course, if it just so happens that she ends up making her best friend fall in love with her out of gratitude, then that would also be an acceptable outcome. I think I that know. that is yes. a very generous reading. <laughs> 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 I don't okay, disagree with so you no that it's possible. That no, it. well, I don't disagree with you that it's a possible reading, but I think you're doing a lot of Forsman's heavy lifting there. <laughs> oh my god, I'm the new Entwist. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Netflix. I want a TV deal. Uh, would watch. <laughs> I think the other sequence that I quite liked. So the actual illustration style was not my favorite. It's just a little too sparse. Mm-hmm. But I quite liked the way that Forsman captures the encounter between Brad and Dina when she's in the car and he's comforting her and then he starts pressuring her for sex and she ultimately sort of relents and then decides not to go with it and he ends up pushing her out of the car. Mm -hmm. But I like that that is just a static image of the car with the horizon in the distance and then we're getting the dialogue up top in a separate box 
but the image remains the same. The only thing that changes from panel to panel is the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that we don't have to see the attack or the the attempted sexual assault on her. I agree with that. It's one of those things where uh, in a book that is kind of exploitive in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. that felt the least kind of exploitive element of it, even though... You don't have to say kind to Terry. You can just go hog on it. (laughs) This book is definitely exploitative. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not be generous if we don't feel it. (laughs) There are things about this that I I do and I did like, though, to be perfectly clear. Um, It's not like 100%, maybe a 99% dislike, but there are some things that I I did like. A couple scenes, like like you mentioned, um, Joe, I, I enjoyed the diary portion of it mm. as it compares to the scene and the thing that stuck out to me the most that um i feel like the comic actually does a little bit better than the uh than the show is one scene where she's like talking about to be honest my mom is kind of a b-word she really just annoys the crap out of me and the comic pain that we get is her mom looking desperate, trying to put plates on a table mm-hmm. in a diner. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of it's this kind of thing of like I, I think it does get into some of the 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 mindset of of teen use where you know you're going through all the hormones and you're going through all of that and everything is is the worst in, in some ways sometimes. You're super irrational. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And yet it's showing kind of the stark realization. And this happens a couple times whenever she's talking about her mom where you see that her mom is struggling just as as much as she is, but there's a lack of communication. And I think the comic kind of does a good job, honestly, of depicting that with, with very few, very few frames. Too much time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a certain expediency in the comic where no one character is ever present for a very long period of time. And I think it actually makes more sense now that you've mentioned Brenna, that this was, published almost as a serial or episodic mm-hmm. format i think it was a patreon thing he did good lord this was someone's <laughs> reward for something <laughs> someone <laughs> someone had to pay for this uh. i think that's what i read somewhere he oh. had a patreon i want to say that this was either like an, one of the newsletter things that he did or a patreon thing that he was doing hot yeah. barf that's terrible and again he got on netflix too. <laughs> 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 yeah it's tricky to praise it because in a lot of ways i kept craving more character development like this is a short comic and you're not spending a lot of time with anybody except sydney and she is kind of insufferable a lot of the time because she's so doom and gloom but i did like that at least we get a sense of who these characters are and Mm -hmm. we get a recognition that Sydney is not always a reliable narrator mm-hmm. because of her yeah. heightened emotional. I don't, can I even say that about a teenage girl? It sounds so flippant to just be like <laughs> she's a teenage girl, so you know she's what crazy. You but I, but I, I think it's fair for you to say that because I actually I think that is how the author treats her. Okay, in that case, I will give myself the out. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I just. It's interesting, Joe, that you brought up the art being sparse. We talked about this when we talked about Persepolis. Yes. And we talked about, uh, because I'm really boring and I do this to you, we talked about Scott McCloud's theory of the idea of universality and the more simplified the visual signature of a comic, the more universal the story. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case here. So Persepolis, really simple 
characterization, really simple facial design, particularly of characters. Yeah. And yet each character is imbued with so much characterization, empathy, and then you bring so much to it because of that capacity for universality in the visual signature of the comic, right? Right. But here, that's not what's happening, like, at all. It's almost like the sparseness of the imagery here lays bare just how... Little there is. Well, just how unthoughtfully the characters are developed. Like, I... I don't know. It's... Okay, so... I guess I'm just tired of reading. (laughs) (laughs) I know where you're going with this. I'm so tired of reading white men. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, Yes, I mean, I am. It's not that I don't think that men can ever write women, because I've read some beautiful examples. Like one that I come back to over and over again was Wally Lamb's She's Come Undone, which for me was a life-changing book about womanhood that I read as a teenager and was, yeah, pulled away by and Wally Lamb is a dude. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not possible, but you have to care. Like you have to have some kind of empathy for I just felt like when I was reading this comic and I was reading Sydney's experiences, I was reading like every fight I've ever been in on the internet with some guy who thinks that he knows what women think about things and is so certain in his perspective that he can't think for a second that he's like arguing with a woman about a woman's experiences. Do you know what I mean? And I just, to me, that's what this book read like. Like, Charles Forsman just feels like an internet troll turned into a cartoonist. And I, I don't know, man, I'm so incapable of cutting slack for that anymore because I've been reading it my whole life and I'm just tired. And I think we also need to think about things like here we have a lesbian character or or at least a a queer, a questioning character who Mm -hmm. comes to a tragic end because in the kinds of stories these guys write, they always come to a tragic end. We have a woman who comes to a tragic end. In fact, we have every woman in the text comes to something of a tragic end because women in stories written by these kind of guys always come to a tragic end. And I just i'm so friggin tired uh terry (laughs) no no i'm i'm just trying to think um because i i wanted to read it's the end of the effing world in anticipation of this and brenna i'm gauging from your reaction that we will not be doing a future episode (laughs) on that which is sad because the show is actually really good yeah no i'd be will i would be willing i mean as long as it's in the library i'm not giving this man any money okay For the record, I had to buy this book because <gasps> I could not get it back out from the library fast enough because I yeah. missed my exit window. Anyway. No! <laughs> yeah. So, Charles Forsman, I hope you appreciate my $22. Buy it too on Kindle. No. <laughs> no! Okay. <laughs> Terry, because you have read that. So, I, yeah. I read the other comic that he published the same year as I'm Not Okay With This, a comic called Stalker. No. Slasher? Slasher. Thank you just to get a sense of whether I am not okay with this is representative of the kinds of narratives and visual signatures that he has. And it it's quite on brand for him. <laughs> like Slasher, uh, I hated it. It's the exact same thing. It's people with weird kinks who come together and end up becoming murderous because the world is a garbage dump and it's not enjoyable to read there's no characterization once again terry is that kind of the similar situation you said you didn't enjoy the end of the effing world 
Yeah, it is. It's exactly the same thing. Um, I, I would say that if we're comparing, um, I'm not okay with the end of the effing world. The end of the effing world is more ambiguous in its ending. Okay. Which I think is captured in the, in the show. It's very faithful to that kind of ambiguous for the first season, at least Right. Um, ambiguous to the ending. But yeah, it is about these broadly written characters who are incredibly disaffected with the world and the world is all gone to hell. So why not not care about <laughs> anything is basically kind of the the thematic thread of that of that story. And it's sort of like a, a road trip through this kid that kind of wants to he's not sure if he wants to to kill or have sex with this woman <laughs> this is the, this girl and it, that's basically the entire story until the yeah. end <laughs> but it's a it's a male main male yeah okay because mm-hmm. i i will admit i kept wondering why i'm not okay with this is a female yes character. yes so much of it reads male to me well, I think it's because Charles Forsman wants to write this really shallow story about like quote unquote daddy issues. Like there's this there's this line in the TV adaptation that is so apt because Brad throws that at her, right? He's like, mm-hmm. oh, and check out the daddy issues on this one. And when he said that, I was like, that resonated. Like, oh with, yes, <laughs> that resonated with my reading of the comic, right? Which is that like it had to be a girl because the connection with her dad had to be this strong and Charles Forsman is not creative enough to think of a way to tell that story through the perspective of a teenage boy. That's what I think. I'm not very generous. I'm not very generous. <laughs> so I, I do think um, that it's interesting that you you uh, you kind of brought up the daddy issues because I did find an interview with him and he says that this story is actually his most the most personal to him because he lost his dad when he was 11 and so he says, so Sid's relationship with being a teenager and dealing with that loss and emptiness is a huge thing. So again, why not make it more autobiographical and make it a male? Now I feel like right. a dick. <laughs> no, I mean, here's the thing. Okay, that's the impetus for the story. It doesn't give him an out for telling it badly. No, that's no. true. No. Yeah. And so like the, the, the whole like zits thing on his thigh, that was something that he dealt with as a kid. So like there are stuff that he pulled directly from his life, but I don't know why he decided to cast it as a as a female character when he could have just as easily went with male because of his mm-hmm. his life story. Although maybe maybe he didn't feel comfortable adding in queer elements to it if it was well and that is the other thing. So Terry at one point you tried to put a condition on it but you called this exploitative. Mm-hmm. And I won't lie, the queer elements in this yes. did read exploitative to me. It feels yeah. like an opportunity to be like Let's make vulgar tongue illustrations and suggest a female sexuality. Yep. Guys, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Can we move on to the show? (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Just because I feel like the show is doing so much better. Yes, I really like the show. (laughs) My name is Sydney. I'm a boring 17-year-old white girl. I'm not special. Yippee might help with your moods. I keep losing my temper. I don't want to, but it just spills out. Hey, Sid. Hey, Stanley Barber. He lives down the street from me. Shoes. Who needs them? My best friend is Dina. She's dating golden boy Bradley Lewis. (laughs) Do you ever smile? Anyway, my dad died last spring. 
And now, everything's so different. Dear diary, when does this get easier? It's probably just puberty. So, as we mentioned, I'm not okay with this. It's a 2020 TV show. All of these episodes clock in at just around or just under 30 minutes, which is... I now believe in God. (laughs) (laughs) I have found my religion, and it is the 30-minute Netflix show. (laughs) It's It's just a beautiful thing when you sit down to watch something that you have a time limit to watch it in and you see that it's 19 minutes long you just like you just want to cry with happiness and as a reviewer (laughs) trying to like get a review out before the show comes up it is so nice to be able to sit down and like i can watch the whole thing and review it not like i had to cram and i only got halfway through the season and let's face it this is one of the few netflix shows that isn't just full of unnecessary padding and garbage we have talked about netflix creeps so often on this podcast Mm -hmm. yeah this feels appropriate given the content that they are working with so Mm -hmm. it was developed by jonathan entwistle who also did it's the end of the effing world and he is joined by his producing partner christy hall he directs all eight episodes and the show stars a pretty decent cast so anybody who's following up-and-coming young actresses we've mentioned sophia lillis before when we did our episode on nancy drew Obviously, she's the big female star from the It adaptations for Stephen King. She's real good. She's mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, she's fantastic in pretty much everything that she does. And I think she's really well cast in this. Mm-hmm. And then she is joined by Wyatt Olaf, who plays Stanley. And he, ironically enough, is also from It. Although I feel like this is a much meatier role for him. Which is good because I so think he does great. This. He's very good in this. He's kind of super adorable. And I mm-hmm. was like, don't fall in love with that hair because he's rocking it. These two um, bring so much humanity to roles that in the comic are just so so devoid of it that I was like, I think I was two minutes in and I was like, oh, okay. Because I had yes. put off watching it. Like, so Terry, I always do this thing where when I read the book and I hate it, I put off watching the, the show <laughs> until like sometimes minutes before we go to air. And um, I I did that again this time. And I was like, because uh, so I started watching yesterday and I was like, oh, no, this is actually quite lovely. Like, they're quite lovely. Oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of humanity to these Mm -hmm. characters, and they feel lived in. They feel like real people. Mm -hmm. So rounding out the cast, we have Sophia Bryant as Dina. We've got Kathleen Rose Perkins as Sydney's mother, Maggie. And then Richard Ellis as Brad, Dina's boyfriend, who is a big old Mm a-hole. And Aiden Wojak Hissong. I probably massacred his last name. He plays Liam, Sydney's younger brother, who has a much more substantial part to play in this. And let me just say, as the person who usually complains about the kid characters, I think that expanding his role was the best decision that Entwistle made in this adaptation. Because he's lovely and he like he gives us a reason to like Sydney. His character gives us a reason to like Sydney. So I was super happy with that. And that kid is great. He's not annoying. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, he's good. Even when he's making a load of lasagna, he's not annoying. <laughs> I love disgusting. that it's surprisingly good. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a nice twist, right? Like the show is actually pretty good at both giving us exactly what we expect and also throwing in just a dash of subverted expectations. I just think between Maggie, the mother, and Liam, we get a rounded family unit that makes a lot more sense. And we also get to see the impact of trauma on the whole family instead of it just being triangulated through Sydney. Over and over again in the comic, there's this sense that Sydney believes herself to be the only person who was hurt by her dad's suicide mm-hmm. yes. or not suicide because it's so triangulated through her sense of guilt slash success in a weird way but with the show when you take that piece of it out or maybe it's coming in season two who knows you end up getting to see like how has Liam been impacted by this how is Maggie's life impacted by this and it's part of the growth of Sydney's character over the seven episodes is her slow realization that other people have feelings too yeah yeah I don't disagree that I think the comic probably does a better job of reinforcing how misguided Sydney's perception of her mother is. Mm. But I think the mother character, I mean, shockingly enough, she has more depth, but also (laughs) she's so much more interesting. Like one of my favorite kind of low key scenes in the series is when she has it out with Sydney in her room and she says, you know, (gasps) you need to stop treating your father Like, basically, she says, you wish I had died. And guess what? He's the one who's gone. I'm the one who's still here. And you're punishing me for it. It's the part where she says, like, when he was alive, you always chose him. And now he's gone and you're still choosing him. I was like, oh, yeah, it feels. It cuts deep. Oh, so good. It does. I mean, I don't think it hurts that Kathleen Rose Perkins is. Phenomenal. She's so likable, and you Mm -hmm. can see how harried she is and how she is trying to keep this family from falling apart. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also think that the the show does a better job of framing her as also kind of a problem, too, yes. in some ways. Like, there's an earlier scene that I took notes, and I, I took notes twice because it just hit me both times, was when she's they're sitting on the, on the couch, couch together. On the couch, the peanut butter, right? That scene? Sorry. Yeah, I, 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 think, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Sydney's like, sometimes it feels like the people I love don't yes, love me yes, back. Yes, 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 and oh. she yes, just yes, says... Yes, yes. Maybe you're aiming too high. <laughs> oh my god, it's another gut wrench. It's I'm such like, a gut ow, wrench. ow, ow, uh-huh. because she's talking about her family. She's yep. obviously talking about you. Yep, <laughs> like and Dina, but like the, in that moment, she is like she's she's reaching out to her mom, and yep. her mom's just like, yeah, maybe you're aiming too high. And she doesn't even look at her when oh. she says it. She's no. nose deep in a glass of wine and staring straight ahead of the television, which she's not even watching because she's tuned out. Right. You get this sense of she doesn't have the bandwidth, right? Like she's been working in a diner all day. She's been slapping a fake smile on her face for customers all day. She's worked a double shift. Like she just doesn't have the energy for Sydney, full stop. And it's so honest and so painful. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll confess that as the episodes went on, it became a lot more obvious to me that we were not heading for the same kind of resolution. And Brenna, you've already hinted that there is, again, spoilers, we're definitely trying to set up a season two that oh, has yeah. not been greenlit as of the time that we're recording this episode, but I feel like it's a bit of an inevitability. Like, I'd be very surprised if Netflix didn't pull the trigger on a second season. So in the TV series, we have the addition of this idea that there's someone following her, someone following Sydney, who knows about her powers, who has seen what she can do, um, who can trigger her. 
did you guys think that it was her dad? Yeah, I totally yeah. thought it was her dad. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> like, I didn't love it. It's interesting because I hated the ending of the comic. I think it's exploitative. I think it's too easy. I think it suggests suicide as a solution in a way that is deeply, deeply troubling to me. Like, almost as a way out. Right? Yeah. Well, literally, that's what she says, right? If you've got nothing else, this is the way to do it. And you're just thinking, that is so fucking irresponsible. It's so irresponsible. And on the flip side, I didn't love the way the show sort of setting her up to be, like, I don't know, part of the Teen Avengers or something. Like, I (laughs) I didn't love that either. So I don't know what I wanted from the ending, but neither one of these satisfied me. Well, I, the one thing that the kind of uh, connection to the, the comic that I found interesting was in, in the comic, there's also this kind of idea of something following her. And I wasn't quite sure what the point of it was in the, in the comic, what I guess is pretty apt for the book. But <laughs> the, there's like a couple scenes where this shadowy creature appears in like the corner oh, of the yes, room. Oh, yes, yes. I took that to be a manifestation of guilt. Okay. Because, like, it shows up at the time where, like, she's having um, an intimate moment with uh, Ryan, the... The cashier, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, like, touches the back of her head. And it almost seems like I kind of gathered that that was, like, a visual representation of, like, her power mm. manifesting. And it kind of, I don't know, it it felt weird to me because it, it just showed up a couple times. But it felt like it was, like, this kind of deep, dark evil inside of her. And I thought that was kind of maybe what the show was going for and then the ending just sort of kind of upended that and it made it feel like it was her mentor that they kind of hint at gosh what's the boy uh stan stan sorry that stan kind of um hints at the you know in, in these types of stories there's a mentor figure and he kind of shows up and he's like let's begin yeah i didn't i didn't really care for that ending either for Anna, to be to be honest it's actually a, a pretty strong point of contention in most of the reviews that i saw I think a lot of reviewers feel like it's a bit too much of an easy out to set the show up for that second season, as opposed to trying to put a capper on what has already happened. It's like, and also give us the green light for the second season. Yeah, yeah. It also yeah. feels like the element that has pushed people into making some really generically easy comparisons to things like Stranger Things. Mm. It doesn't hurt that it does share a producing partner in Sean Levy, uh, or sorry, an executive producer in Sean Levy who is behind Stranger Things. And obviously the look has a bit of a, you know, it's a small town everywhere, USA, but also we've got a young girl who's got telekinetic powers. So I can see the comparisons. I think they're a little bit unearned. I think the more obvious comparison is Carrie. Duh. Yes. <laughs> Which people also do reference because, of course, this ends at a bloody prom incident. And we've yeah. got mm-hmm. a girl who's insecure about her sexuality. We've got a slightly oppressive home life that she's trying to escape. But I guess the, the ending for me felt natural up until the point where the shadowy mentor yes. person is revealed. Had that not been included, I actually would have thought the ending episode is quite strong because it yes. feels like a very natural, organic progression. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's like one step too far. <sighs> yeah, I just I don't I what I what I really liked about this first season was that it kind of felt in a way like an anti superhero mm-hmm. story, like yeah. an anti origin story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't feel the need to step into that arena, except for the part where Stan is getting her to think about her powers, which feels natural for where this is going, right? Like he's yeah. a bit mm-hmm. geeky, but also 
they're kids. Like it makes sense to want to test what you can actually do. And I think mm. the visual image of her getting angry and launching those bowling balls at him is just amazing, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of good visual spectacle scenes included in her powers. We also learn in that moment quite a bit about how she actually feels about Stan, right? Like whether she's romantically interested in him or not, what horrifies her about that scene is that she could have killed him, right? She could have hurt him. Well, and he's also giving voice to all of her insecurities in that moment, really. Mm -hmm. It's confirmation that what he's saying is what she thinks people are saying about her. Yes. Can we talk about the Breakfast Club episode, episode Uh number five? Uh Did we like it? Did we not like it? Was it a little too on the nose with the homage? I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Brenna, why don't you start? Why did you not like this? Um... I feel like the series is doing such an interesting job of telling a YA story that is very much not informed by YA tropes that I thought it was an odd choice to circle into the tropiest trope to ever trope. And I guess we've seen (laughs) so many Breakfast Club scenes, right? Degrassi had a Breakfast Club scene. Dawson's Creek had a Breakfast Club scene. Mm -hmm. Gossip Girl had a Breakfast Club scene. Like they've all had this scene. Right. It's the equivalent of like the walk through the cafeteria with like, that's that group and that's this yes. group. And I just felt like it didn't need it, right? Like normally when a show goes to that space, what it's trying to articulate for you is how it is different than the teen programming that has come before, right? Like usually something happens in the Breakfast Club scene that undoes our expectations. And that happens here, but it isn't necessary because the show is not tropey. Like I'm, I'm actually wondering what, bingo's gonna look like today because i feel like it's not a particularly tropey ya show so i just didn't i mean i didn't hate it like i was like fine this is fine we're doing this like we're walking (laughs) through these beats but it felt utterly unnecessary to me that's actually very funny that you say it's not tropey because that was one of the other criticisms that a lot of critics ended up throwing at it was that it's derivative of everything that you've seen before really yeah but okay so terry contrast uh why did you like it I mean, I guess for me, Brenda, when you're listing out all of these shows that have done this before, I've never seen any of those shows. Um, so, like, I guess for me, outside of, like, The Breakfast Club and not another teen movie, like, I guess I haven't seen it that much personally. Mm-hmm. So, it, to me, I didn't. it didn't really bother me. But I liked that it kind of gave – it gave our three characters. It gave um, Dina and, and Sid and Stanley, who have been kind of – at each other's throats but not like it just sort of like this this awkward friendship moment they're able to come together for like a heist that kind of solidifies their friendship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. while at the same time also pushing the story forward with you get the um the idea of this supernatural being that's in in the in the library and you we find out about brad's um infidelity which again contrasts with the kiss that that Sid and, and Dina shared at that same party. So like, there's there's a lot of stuff that um, I thought was interesting that I don't know how you would be able to as effectively put all that together without bringing all the characters together for a moment. Yeah, like there's a lot that comes out, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the reason mm-hmm. you do a kind of bottle episode like this, where mm-hmm. you lock everybody into one location so that you can get the secrets out. I do think Jenny is terribly misused. Like I just like. Yeah. We parachute her in because we need, like, a slutty rebel character, and then we parachute her back out again. It's like, really? 
I did think it was hysterical because I, I realized when the first season ended, I was like, where's Jenny? Have we seen her in a couple of episodes? <laughs> no? Jenny, are you over there? <laughs> Joe, were you getting a, a Jennifer's body kind of feel from her? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I kept waiting for her to show up and be the mysterious figure because she's so not poorly used, but she's just not present that I thought maybe she's the one who's actually lurking on the periphery because she seems to have this vested interest in Sydney that really comes to the forefront in this particular episode. Like what's with Sydney? How come everybody's so interested in her? And I, I kept thinking while she was talking about that, I went to myself, why are you so interested in Mm -hmm. Sydney? Mm-hmm. And I thought that one thing that I, I definitely talking about her character that I thought didn't land very well was after everything sort of comes out and she's just like, you guys want to go get drunk? <sighs> yeah. um, it's just, it just felt like such a throwaway character. Like, yeah. okay, you, that's why you're there. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to do a good job of distilling this into something intelligent. So I'm probably just going to link to it in the show notes. But I did like at the end of the first season, Jen Cheney on Vulture did a season review, but she focuses specifically on this episode. She breaks down how this particular episode mirrors The Breakfast Club, but also how the overall arc of the show mirrors a lot of other John Hughes films. So oh, there's a scene where Dina and Sydney are talking and it looks like a scene from 16 Candles and she kind of recasts Sydney as a modern day Molly Ringwald, right? Because they're both redheads with short hair and they're the plucky heroines. But mm. Cheney frames this as a way of making queer sexuality acceptable. It's the kind of subversive, progressive thing that you wouldn't ever see in a John Hughes film because his goal was just to make teens like to treat them emotionally, honestly. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, we've moved the barometer so far in terms of teen content that we can now actually make female queer sexuality the acceptable piece. And I'll leave it at that. I'll link to the review so that people can read it for themselves. But I thought it was a really interesting way of reframing it because it wasn't until I read it that I realized this show normalizes Sid's queer desires, particularly in the prom scene when it comes out that she has feelings for Dina. Nobody, like, that's not the revelation. That's Mm -hmm. not the thing that she's afraid of having come out. She's afraid that her powers are going to be the thing that comes out, which is why Brad's head has to pop like a balloon before it does. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry, that was a dump. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um... (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to think of yeah that was that was a lot that was a lot Joe that I'm was sorry <laughs> I think I like the fact that the show treats her same sex desire like I think you're right Brenda we don't actually have a clear indication on whether she is a lesbian or is she's bisexual or is she you know she never really self-identifies she's mm-hmm. clearly working through where her attraction lies Mm -hmm. and right now it's more obviously associated with dina than stan Mm -hmm. but i like the fact that the show both makes a big deal out of it but also doesn't treat it like it's a horrible secret that she has to hide one of the things that that really um resonated with me in this show was sydney going to uh when when stan invites her to prom Mm -hmm. and she's so she's decided that she's going to go with the boy when she really just wants to go with dina yeah because um, i had a similar situation in high school where it's like you know i was i was deeply closeted and one of my female friends asked me to go to uh homecoming and 
I went along because I thought that was like the quote unquote normal thing to do. So I found myself relating a lot to the kind of high school first love when you are interested in someone of the same sex, but you you don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I found that the queer aspect of the story, as opposed to the comic, was was very, very well handled in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's very touching too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a believability in the way that Dina reacts to her, but I like the fact that the distance that develops between them in part is because Dina is dating Brad and she's, you know, she's in the throes of new love. So she's just constantly looking for opportunities to spend time with this guy, turning a blind eye to all the terrible things that he does to her. Cause that's what we do when we're young and a little bit foolish. But also, as the season moves on, she becomes increasingly distanced because she feels that Sid is not being true to her, right? Mm -hmm. Which, I don't know, I really enjoyed that final episode where the three of them almost come together. And there's like Mm -hmm. a weird vibe that there's like a sexual chemistry between all three of them. But then Stan leaves so that he can go and request Blood Witch (laughs) from the DJ. And we just get this really tender moment between the two girls and you know there's a a nice visual contrast i do love the fact that sophia lillis is obviously a really gorgeous young woman and this series just puts her in the ugliest shapeless clothes even Mm -hmm. up to including this prom dress that kind of looks like a square sack (laughs) (laughs) and meanwhile dina is like just absolutely stunningly gorgeous in her dress (laughs) It's such a nice moment, right? Like, it had to end at prom. We know something terrible is going to happen because we've seen the flash forwards that open most of the episodes. But we still get this genuine emotional connection before everything goes down. I think another thing I really liked about it is that often when these stories are told, at least in YA novels, uh, we get a lot of meditation on the, like, am I using the straight friend part, right? And that Mm -hmm. doesn't happen here. She does care about Stan. She doesn't care about Stan like that, but they're close. And in many ways, they're closer than she and Dina are, or are they becoming so because he knows about her powers, right? Mm-hmm. And so instead, it's like, it's a much more mature moment of asking Stan to kind of reflect honestly on their relationship rather than just this sort of very tropey, like, oh, you're using me. I'm, I'm the aggrieved party here, right? Mm-hmm. Which we often see in these stories. So I thought that that was quite tender. When it comes out early too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it comes out in that bowling sequence that she doesn't like him that way. Yeah. And he's fine with it. Yeah. Like he's not okay with it. He still tells her at the prom that he really likes her that way. Mm-hmm. And she has to reiterate, you know, I feel differently about you. But it's nice that we don't have a moment. Like I half expected him to be like, I'm the one who stole your diary and I gave yeah. it to Brad. I'm so glad. And the did. series doesn't do that. No. no. And I'm so glad we don't get any like tedious meditations on the friend zone or any of that bullshit. Uh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything else stand out about the TV show that you want to talk about? I had a couple okay. couple things I wanted to bring up because um Brenny, you talked about how the comic was a yet another white man telling the story about, you know, teenage teenage women, mm-hmm. right? So, one of the things that I found was interesting is that most of the episodes yes, were written by women. I saw that too. Outside of a guy named uh, Tripper Clancy, all of them mm-hmm. have been written by women. And yes. I think it shows. It I think it shows. shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know some people said that they found the voiceover to be a little pretentious and just kind of like overbearing. 
I don't entirely disagree with that. As folks know, I'm not the biggest fan of voiceover work. It could have been used a little bit more judiciously, but at the same time, I think it's mostly fine. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of the dialogue in particular, this is teen speak that feels authentic. Yes. But particularly the female conversations. Yes. Yes. See, I like the voiceover narration because um, it tied completely into the into the story because it comes around full circle when the diary gets um, gets taken and he has it. We know what's in there because she's been narrating yeah. it the entire time. So we know what's at stake. We know everything that she's talking about. Yeah. I think I just sometimes felt like it was it was a bit too much. Like you could have pulled back on some of it. I don't disagree mm. that it probably needed to be in there a little bit, but there were times where I was like, yeah, I get it. I don't need you to tell me everything. But that, I think it's more of a personal preference, to be honest. Mm. Gotcha. Also, Wyatt. Can we talk about Wyatt Olaf as Stanley Barber? <laughs> this is like a, a breakout role for him, in my mm-hmm. opinion. I thought he was he was my favorite part of this, of this show because he just, he felt so free. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, and when when you see when you see him coming from like it, where like I thought he was, he's the least misused. interesting character in that movie. Yeah, and so he comes to this, and and he has such it's a, a big meaty role to dig into, and like he's not afraid of being fey because he's introduced to these like kind of barefoot and bohemian and like mm-hmm. half hop skipping down the road, and like I'm like this this dude is cool. He just and no one else can can see it, but like. He's so free with his with his own feelings and his own personality that I just I found him incredibly endearing. Oh, strong agree. Yeah. yeah, I love that one of the episodes even acknowledges just how fun and silly and dorky he is. Like that extended sequence where he's getting ready for the prom. Yes. and you just see him lip syncing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, right? I love it. His comedic timing is really good. And I feel like the connection, like the emotional intimacy that he has with Sophia Lillis in this is really strong. Agreed. It probably comes a lot from um, working so close together with, you know. They've spent a lot of time together already. (laughs) Yeah, because you can tell they just they come across as friends that have been friends for forever. Mm -hmm. They have that that chemistry together. Yeah. Out of curiosity, Terry with Sophia Bryant, the actress who plays Dina, did you get a Tragedy oh Girls vibe from yes. her? Yes, yes. I was totally feeling the, um, I can't remember what her, the actress's name is off the top of my head. Sorry, Brenna, this means nothing I have no you. idea what's happening. Alexandra Ship. Yes, Alexandra Ship. Yep, I was getting a Tragedy Girls. I was getting the um, Love, Simon, because she was in both. Like, I was like, is this her sister? Because I had to, like, look her up, because I was definitely getting that vibe from her. Brenna, do you remember Love, Simon? Is she the out-of-town girl, Terry? Yeah. Yeah. That's not the same actress, is it? No, we're saying it. Oh. No. The the actress in I'm Not Okay With This looks like a younger sister, like almost an oh. exact replica of that other actress. Oh, like, yeah, it's I uncanny. can see it. The only thing is like the hair is just a little bit different, but for the most part, it's just like her facial expressions, the way she moves, even her mm-hmm. height. It's like, what is going on here? I'm confused. Uh, no honestly I really enjoyed this cast even Brad the actor who plays Brad I thought he does such a good job of embodying all of the things that you dislike about the high school job it's true but there's just that little bit under the surface where you think particularly that moment where Stan and Sydney go and watch the game (sighs) 
and Brad gets injured, but Stan is basically just pontificating about how this is going to be the best year of all of their lives. And you're like, well, yep, that Stan's I can dad, see that for Brad. Right? Like, that's mm-hmm. what you find out later is that that's Stan's dad. Stan's dad is that guy. He yeah. was homecoming king, and now he's nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all of those little additions that I think mm-hmm. make the show so much stronger. We get those scenes in the comic. Like, there's whole sections of the show that are just lifted wholesale directly from the comic, and they're mm-hmm. replicated. But there's something, obviously, about the likability of these actors and their performances But then the writing is giving us that emotional depth, the nuance, the characterization that really helped to sell the TV show. So it doesn't, even the tropiest of aspects, feel legitimate. Like, they feel earned. And also gives us a really fantastic head explosion. (laughs) Oh, the gore. The gore was good. (laughs) It was good. I rewound it a couple times. I was like, how did they do this? It looked really good. I love the fact that the reaction online to this head explosion was like, holy cow, so unexpected. Like, it's massive. And you're just like, oh, it's kind of just a moment in the comic. But I did love the fact that it's not taking place at Brad's work in front of just a single other person who's, I think, knocked Mm -hmm. out at that point. I love the fact that it happens as a giant public spectacle. And spectacle it is. Um, Okay, shall we do a quick round of YA bingo? Yes, I've been waiting. (laughs) (laughs) bingo not a good bingo all right so terry as our guest you get first dibs what were some of the bingo slots that you wanted to pick okay um so obviously we have mediocre white boys there's so many of them there's one of them wrote brad (laughs) (laughs) he might be a a mediocre white man but yes (laughs) unconfirmed (laughs) <laughs> and i mean stan's dad was at one yeah. point a mediocre white boy before he's a mediocre white man mm-hmm. um full of homophobia Oof. so we, we got that we had uh dead parents for sure yeah dead parent musicality i loved i loved the music in this um it was a mix of like it kind of going back to um the, the discussion about it being sort of like pulled from john hughes there's a lot mm-hmm. of um mu- music from the 80s and I love the Blood Witch. I love that that song. Mm-hmm. Fly is what it is. If you're looking for it, <laughs> yeah. And love triangle. How about like a love square between Dina and Sid and Stan and Brad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Brenna, what do you want to add? Uh, I'm going to add a slutty secondary character for poor Jenny. Yeah, mm. I think if this does get picked up for a second season, I think they'll actually start to do a lot more with her. I'd like to see more Jenny. Sexual awakening, obviously in the comic, it's mm-hmm. strongly correlated between her powers, uh, Sydney's powers and her sexual awakening. Yeah. Because uh, that's what that kind of dude likes to write about teenage girls. And, um, well, and that's that's actually pretty standard fare for any shows that are dealing with horror. That's true. a lot of adolescents mm-hmm. like with sexual maturity comes nightmarish powers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unlikely friendships, I'm going to give it to... Um, we get told at the very beginning of the TV show version and also of the book that Dina and Sydney wouldn't be friends if they weren't sort of conveniently friends. And uh, Sydney and Stanley become friends because of their proximity as well, at least in the TV show. So I'm going to mm-hmm. give that to Unlikely Friendships. Yep. Um, and I think that's it. Okay. I'm going to add abuse because we've oh, got yeah. some yeah. pretty wow. strong yeah. abuse oh, yeah. going on in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. 
some emotional abuse from Sydney's mom and some physical abuse from Stanley's father. Mm-hmm. Well, and in the book, uh, domestic violence between Brad Absolutely. and Dina. Right. Yes. I guess the final one is, can we call the prom a perfect date until the head explosion? Because <laughs> things are going pretty well until Brad steps in. To be honest, I think the head explosion just adds to the perfect yeah, <laughs> You know what? We got two birds with one stone. <laughs> I got a date with my gal. And also I got rid of her terrible boyfriend. <laughs> yup. <laughs> okay. All right. So sadly, that is not a line, but we came pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, we'll take it. Um, so folks if you want to let us know that we got the comic totally wrong and it's actually secretly awesome i don't believe you but you can try at hashtag hkhs pod on the twitters uh terry as our guest if people want to find you where should they go sure um i am on twitter where i talk too much um i'm at gaily dreadful you can find me there and you can also find my podcast um scarred for life podcast it's at scarred podcast on twitter nice that's a fun one. It's people talking a lot about their first childhood fears when it comes to movies. Oh, interesting. I saw yeah. Thinner at a sleepover and I never got over it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds Would about you right. like to come on our show? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to watch Thinner again? Yes. Then absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you want to tell me why I'm a big scaredy cat, you can find me on the Twitters at Brenna C. Gray. And Joe, where can they find you? I am at Beastole, my remote, and that's the letter B. And if you've got something longer for us, you can shoot us an email. Remember to keep those mini-sode episode ideas coming at hkhspod at gmail.com. And Joe, mm-hmm. Joe, where yes. are we off to for our next regular sode? All right. So, Brenna, we're going to stick around high school, shockingly enough. Shocking. Don't we live in high school? <laughs> Pretty much. But we're going to uh, jump to a female-written book. Finally. Well, don't get too excited about this because I'm actually a little bit afraid. So we are going to be covering The Duff. Oh, The Duff. Mm Mm-hmm. Otherwise known as Designated Ugly Fat Friend. Oh, good. Good. Uh, Do you love how I am always surprised by what's coming up next on our show, even though I clearly have access to the Google spreadsheet, but never open it? I mean, I'm... I'm guessing it's my most endearing quality as a co-host. Exactly. Yes, your <laughs> level of commitment is right up there with other people's dedication to Sparkle Motion. Oh my god, this week I was making podcasting videos for work and I was like, I'm such a fraud. I'm <laughs> I don't do any of the work. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a front person. You're like the lead singer of a band. <laughs> What's a chord progression? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we will be doing The Duff, which is uh, the film is celebrating its fifth anniversary again later on this year. So hopefully we will have better luck with it than we did with me and Earl and the Dying Girl. But uh, next week, we're going to be back with a regular sode. And Brenna, we're going to be talking a little bit about what we kind of started to talk about here. We're talking about sex in YA. We sure are. Mini-sode, by the way, but we sure are. (laughs) Oh, did I say regular sode? You sure did, because that word is so in your vocabulary now. You know what? I hate you. <laughs> Terry, thanks so much for joining us. You brought a lot to this conversation. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Awesome. <laughs> and until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.